We're, we're continuing with our study of the book of Numbers uh, this morning, and uh, we'll be looking at Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, but before we read that, I'd like you to pray with me. God, this is your word. We believe that with all of our hearts. We know because the Holy Spirit has persuaded us ultimately that uh, this word is what has come from your mouth. You have faithfully delivered it to us, in this case through the hand of Moses, your prophet, and throughout the ages you've kept your word reliably handed down now that we have it in our own language and this is a great and precious gift to us because in your word we, we come to know you, the living God, and we come to know your son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, that is our prayer this morning, that the one who was lifted up both on the cross and now is lifted up in glory would be lifted up before our eyes this morning and that not one person here would look upon Christ and despise him or would look upon Christ and, and keep Him at a distance, but that everyone in this room, and this will require the work of Your Holy Spirit, Lord, and we ask You for it, that everyone in this room would look upon Christ with saving faith and would live. And so, Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word in that way, in Christ's name, amen. We're about halfway through our study of this book in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. And in many ways, as we come here to chapter 21, chapter 20 last week, chapter 21 this week, it's a very significant turning point uh, in the book of Numbers. Because it's at this point that a new generation of Israelites begin to emerge here in the wilderness. It will be several more chapters before the older generation, their parents really fully pass off of the scene and die there in the wilderness for their unbelief. But already here in this chapter, things are beginning to change. It's the dawn of a new, of a new era. At the beginning of chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, this new generation actually wins its first military victory. They begin to do what their parents' generation had been too afraid even to attempt which is to fight against and here defeat some of the people that are living within the land that God has promised to his people. So it's the beginning of a, of a significant transition in the book of Numbers. It's this generation that will actually enter the promised land. But to borrow a phrase from Led Zeppelin, which some of you will be familiar with, the song remains the same. As significant as some changes are, even though a new age was dawning for God's people, there were some tragic similarities with the previous generation. So let's read this text and, and see that, but also see how God in His mercy continues to faithfully redeem His people. Let's listen to God's Word. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. 
And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, intercede for us, that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now notice again what happens, what the text says there in verse 5. Verse 4, they become impatient. We've heard this before. It says in the text, literally, their souls became impatient. They became short-tempered. They became agitated. They became impatient on the way. Why? Because they didn't like God's plan. They didn't like the direction that this journey was taking. You know, in our plans, the best route between two straight, uh, the best route between two points is a straight line, usually in our plans. But often in God's wise plans which are so often inscrutable to us. Uh, We can't perceive what he's doing. Often God's plan is to take us from point A to point B through a very long zigzagging course. And we don't often respond to that very well, do we? So they grow impatient and they grumble against God and they grumble against Moses, God's prophet. And let me read verse 5 to you again. Follow along. Look at it again. The people spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. Remember, Moses is God's servant For them to speak against him is to speak against the Lord. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Okay, so Lord, you've brought us. The exodus now becomes just a pathway to slaughter, not to redemption. For there is no food and no water. And very, very interesting. And we loathe this worthless food. Now, do you notice this? First they say, there is no food and there is no water. No food, no water. And then they say, curiously, and we loathe this worthless food. Well, which is it? Do they, do, is, is, there, is there an absence of food and water? Or is it the fact that in their hearts they despise what God has provided for them? Is it the case that God has failed them? Or is it the case that they've failed God and that they've rejected him in their hearts, that they've despised what he's chosen to give them. Well, we've done that before, haven't we? It's just not true that they're not without food and water, is it? All along the way, throughout the wilderness, what has God provided for them miraculously from heaven? Manna. This bread that we're told in the scriptures is is sweet. Could be baked in any number of different ways with oil and was a pleasant tasting food. And God had miraculously provided that for them every step of the way along their wilderness journey. They had never lacked. There's no food. Is it also true that there was no water? What did you hear from Hal last week from Numbers 20? Did not God, from a rock in the wilderness, through Moses, provide enough water that the whole congregation of Israel was fed. Remember, this is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and their livestock. 
have abundant water from a rock in the wilderness. And there's no water. God, you haven't provided. God, there's, you're not caring for us. You're not doing what you... Well, okay, actually, we just hate it. You see how this works? They despise what the Lord is doing. Now, this is, this is exactly how Satan, the deceiver, operates. He's been doing it since he did it with our first parents in Eden. He's doing it still today. He preys on our weakness. He blurs our vision. He undermines the blessing of... Think about this in your own life. He undermines the blessing of God in your life so that you fail to appreciate how, how generous and kind God is being to you. And you look at God's good gifts, and what do you see? Evil. God brings Israel to the brink of, the, of Canaan, and what do they call it? This evil place. God feeds them miraculously from heaven, and what do they call it? Worthless food. This is how Satan operates. He pollutes our minds and hearts. He blinds our eyes to the faithfulness and goodness of God. And so what do they do? Since God doesn't provide what they want, when they want it. You saw it last week. They file a lawsuit against God. That's really the kind of language that's used. They, they enter into court against the Lord. They complain against Him. They put Him on trial. That's what grumbling is, you know. Grumbling is putting God on trial. But of course, it's really the people who are on trial. God is testing them. God loves them. And he's testing them. Why? So that they will trust him and live for him and enjoy him and know him. But of course, they can't see that happening. But the reality is their grumbling is not only against God, but who else is their grumbling against? It's also against themselves. They become in their grumbling, and we so often follow they become the enemies of their own joy, the enemies of their own peace and assurance and comfort. Because in their self-centered living, they make it impossible to enjoy. What's the one thing they cannot enjoy? God's goodness. Because they've put themselves at the center of everything and they've put God on trial. They who are under God have put God under themselves and they cannot enjoy Him. And so not only do they sin against God, but they rob themselves of the good fruits of faith in, in the Lord. So God tests them. How true is this of us? So often, so often. And yet again, we see here God's mercy to them, His jealous love as He, he doesn't leave them. He doesn't abandon them, but He pursues them. He won't let them go. He's going to bring them back. Now, how is He going to bring them back? Well, it's interesting because... At first sight, it appears as if his course of action with them is not redemptive, but, but punitive and, and destructive. But in fact, of course, God actually through this terrible judgment is going to bring salvation to, to them, to his people. Now, what does he do? How does God respond? He sends fiery serpents among the people, and they bite many of the people, and many of the people die. This language, fiery serpents, not fiery because they were on fire, but they were referred to in this language because their venomous bite was so painful and produced such inflammation that it was fiery hot. It was extraordinarily painful and venomous. And then what happens? As the people are being bit by these serpents, they cry out to God. And what do they say? They confess their sin. Oh, Moses. They go to Moses. Moses, we have sinned. First it was God has sinned. Now it's we have sinned. 
And you recognize what they do. They begin to trace their steps. We've spoken against you, Moses. And we've spoken against Yahweh, against the Lord, our God. Please intercede for us. Go to the Lord and pray that He might rescue us. And so Moses, God's faithful servant, not perfect. You saw that last week. Sinful, impatient, but he intercedes for them. And he goes to the Lord on their behalf. And the Lord says, Moses, make a fiery serpent. Craft one, which he does out of bronze or copper. And set it on a pole or a standard, perhaps the staff that Moses had been using throughout their wilderness journeys. And hold it up for all to see. And the Lord says, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, what do we make of this? What is God saying to his people? What is he communicating? What does he want us to understand about him and about the gospel of Christ? Well, I would suggest there are two things very simply in this text to notice. First, the serpents, and then the staff. And that these two things, seeing these two symbols in this text and appreciating what they point to, is actually right at the very heart of what it means for us as individuals and as a church to be faithful to the Lord and to know Him and to bear fruit for Him. So let's look at those things, the serpents. So you have this plague of serpents, fiery serpents. Now this is an image that is loaded with significance for the people of Israel in two very significant ways. First, there's a background in Egypt. The image of the serpent had a very powerful connection with Israel's recent history in Egypt because, as you may be aware, the serpent, the viper, was a very prominent theme, an image of power in Egypt. You may recall having seen some of you children pictures of Egyptian pharaohs with what on their crowns? A cobra. Hey, this, was, this was very much part of the lore of Egypt, a very visible, vivid portrayal of the worst sort of totalitarian power and misery and oppression. Man-centered, kind of man-kingdom. Man's kingdom, the kingdom of this world. Well, suddenly as part of God's judgment on them, they find themselves surrounded by these, by these serpents. And it's like a dramatic sermon that God uses by which he says to them, you really want to go back there? Don't you remember the foolish? Don't you recognize the foolishness of your heart? Don't you remember the oppression and misery and sin that was present there? Don't you remember what I brought you out from? But even more profoundly, there's background in Eden, of course, right? They can think all the way back to Adam and Eve and to the garden where their first parents were seduced by the evil one who took the form of a serpent seduced them, drew their minds and their hearts away from trust in their, in their Father, in the Lord. And ever since then, to keep with the metaphor, sin has slithered its way into the human heart and into the whole course of human history. And according to God's words in Genesis 3, as He curses the ground and as He curses man and as He curses the beasts of the earth, the serpent becomes what? It becomes a symbol, among other things, of the enmity that exists between God and people and between people and people and even between people and the earth. And there's this curse image. There's this, this judgment that comes from God is that they're being attacked on all sides by these serpents who are real serpents who really are attacking them, but they're also symbolic of a deeper problem. 
of the curse of sin and the wages of death, which is what they begin to realize. In verse 7, they realize that everything that's happened to them is because not of God's unfaithfulness, but because of their unfaithfulness, their sin. They're realizing what Paul would say later in the New Testament, that the wages of sin is death. And they realized, as many of us need to realize, that their grumbling was not a little sin. And that what they had done was nothing less than attack God Himself. And they were experiencing in their own bodies the wages of their sin. Now, let's not miss what God's doing here in this response. God sends these fiery serpents among them as just a hint of His judgment against sin. And I want to press this because I want to be sure that you realize that as awful as this is, and we've read other things in Numbers, and you read elsewhere in the Bible, judgments of God against people for this or that. And I want to be sure that you realize that as awful as this is, this is just a micro-judgment. These deadly vipers are just a hint, just a slight taste of the wrath of God against sin. Let me put it this way. When God was judging people here in Numbers 21, when God is judging people in the Old Testament, when He judges Egypt through all these plagues, it's as if He's just holding people's toes, just the tips of their toes into the waters of judgment. It's just a small taste of something much greater to come. And we really need to grasp this because these little micro-judgments, these little flashes when the heavens open up and a flash of judgment comes through against the sin, whether it's the sins of the nations or the sins of God's people, they point beyond themselves to a much deeper reality, a bottomless ocean of judgment that was coming. And we'll come back to this in a few minutes. But it's imperative that we understand this. Because God is showing Israel and He's showing us today that the physical death that many of them experienced on that day is a sign of our great predicament, right? That our sin is deserving not only of physical death, but eventually and ultimately of eternal spiritual death. This is what the Israelites actually come to understand. They're shaken out of their grumbling. They're shaking out of their self-absorption. And God opens their eyes to see that they're dying in the wilderness because of their sin. Now, here's here's what I'll say about the serpents, just to tie this off for now. We've all been bitten. We've all been bitten by sin. And these people who've just joined the church this morning all stood up here and said that they believe, as every Christian does, that Left to ourselves, what do we deserve? The wrath and curse of God. No hope. We've all been bitten by sin. None of us is immune to its its venom. The question is, where are you vulnerable? And let me address you who, who belong to Christ and who have life in Him. Where are you still vulnerable? Where are you still susceptible to being bit? Where are you leaving the door open for sin to bite you? But, of course, the other question is, what's the remedy? What is the remedy? What's the anti-venom? How do I get it? And that's where this other image of the staff comes in. The standard or pole 
to which God curiously, strangely, commands Moses to affix this image of the serpent and then to hold it up for the people of Israel to see. Now think about it. Some of you have already anticipated this. How strange that God would use the, the very image of the thing that was destroying them to be the source of redemption for them. That seems odd, doesn't it? That the, the, an, an image of the thing that was destroying them would now become the source of their healing. But that's precisely what happens. And yet apparently as strange as this may be, it is such a significant image in the Scripture. It's such at the heart of the mission of Jesus Christ that when, as we read this morning, when he's speaking to Nicodemus about his mission in this world, to what does he refer in order to... to bring some light into Nicodemus' dark mind. This very event in Numbers 21, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see what Jesus is saying about himself. You see how Jesus is reflecting upon this event in Numbers 21. Nicodemus didn't fully understand it yet. But Jesus is saying to him that what you see in Numbers 21 is fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. What a great picture he gives us of his ministry, his mission in the world. That just as Moses lifts up the serpent, this image of the curse, and Israel looks to it and is delivered from the curse. So Jesus says the Son of Man, he himself, this glorious Lord and King, will be lifted up. And through his being lifted up, Salvation will come. Deliverance from the curse. The reason that we don't have to die because of our sin is because Jesus has died. Now this is what God foretold in Genesis 3. You remember what he said to the serpent. History now will be characterized by war between your offspring and the woman's offspring. But there will be a day when you will bite his heel and he will crush your head. And this is precisely what happens on the cross. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross to take upon himself the wrath of God, he's being bitten by the serpent. But he's crushing the head of the serpent. You remember what I said a few minutes ago about these micro-judgments in the Old Testament. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, it was not a micro-judgment that he was exposed to. In fact, on the cross, it was not a taste of God's wrath. It was not the outer bands of the storm. It was the full storm. It was the fullness of the cup of God's wrath, which the Bible says make men stagger and reel as if they were drunk because they cannot drink it. And it was that cup that the Son of Man was lifted up to drink. The entire ocean of God's wrath, not these anticipatory drops of judgment along the way like these vipers, but all of it, the whole ocean poured upon His righteous and sinless Son. Do you think about that as enough? Do you think on that often? Do you, as we say, do you survey? Do you calculate? Do you try to calculate? 
Do you rehearse? Do you examine? Do you consider? Do you talk to each other? Do you think out loud to yourself? Do you talk to your own soul about the details of God's love for you in Christ who was lifted up for you? This is precisely what God is pointing His people to in Numbers 21. Can you begin to see the significance of the image of a serpent being the means of deliverance in the wilderness? It's as Paul would write later in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. And what is Paul's, how does he make this connection? By looking back to Deuteronomy and saying, oh yes, the one who dies on the tree is accursed by God. That's where deliverance from the curse comes. Through the cursed one being lifted up. It says, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, God made Christ, what? To be sin. To be sin. In the place of we who are sinners, the one who knew no sin becomes sin. Why? So that we in him might become the righteousness of God. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's the great wonder of the gospel. And Jesus provides the logic for it in his very next verse, his very next comment to Nicodemus. One of the most, probably the most famous verse in the Bible comes right after this reference to Numbers 21. And Jesus is explaining the logic of his being lifted up. And what's the logic? God so loved the world. It's love that puts Jesus on the cross. The love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Spirit. It's love that keeps him there. Love for his Father. Love for you, his people. And the great glory of the gospel, which we begin to see in Numbers 21, which we see explicitly in John 3 and throughout the New Testament, is just this. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ experienced the bottomless depths of God's infinite justice. In order that, you, his sin-bitten people would experience forever the bottomless depths of His infinite love. That is why the Son of Man is lifted up. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Because you see, there's more to His being lifted up than His being lifted up to the cross. That was the beginning, but it wasn't the end. Because on the third day He was raised from the dead by God's power and He appeared over a period of days to more than 500 eyewitnesses who saw his literal, physical, resurrected body. And after 50 days, he ascended to heaven and the Bible tells us was seated at God's right hand. And he's been given the highest name in heaven and on earth. And he reigns over heaven and earth. He is the Lord. Peter says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Christ. You see, Jesus said he was going to be lifted up and that had two episodes. He was first lifted up to the cross, but then he was lifted up to glory. And in fact, his being lifted up to glory, his being exalted began at the cross. And that's why the cross is such a scandal and it's foolishness to the world. Maybe it's been foolishness to some of you. But it was there that his exaltation began. In the darkest depths of humiliation, Jesus was being lifted up for his people. And it's remarkable the way he talks about himself. He says he's the son of man. You have to know a little bit of your Old Testament to understand what he's getting at. But in Daniel chapter 7, 
you get a picture of who the Son of Man is, and He is radiant in His glory and power. He's an eternal king who has an eternal kingdom, and he lives in all of his majesty and power and might and glory forever and ever and ever. And Jesus says, the Son of Man will be lifted up. The the glory of Christ is seen in the darkness of the cross and then in his being raised to glory. The great reversal has happened. You see, what happens at the cross is that Jesus has this victory over the ancient serpent, over Satan himself. And it appears at first glance that Satan has defeated him, but God raises him from the dead, and it becomes clear that he's just struck him on the heel because death could not hold him. Jesus bears in his own body the covenant curse of God so that the sons and daughters of Adam could have life and would not bear that curse would not live under it. And now Jesus is the exalted. Well, he's the king. He's the life giver. The one who has in himself both absorbed all the toxic poison of sin and then through his death and resurrection become the one who gives streams of living water to those who come to him. And so what happens for, for us as we come to Jesus Christ is not merely forgiveness of sins, though that's crucial But resurrection life becomes the believer's. Life eternal becomes yours and mine through faith in this this Son of God. And what's the way to receive His healing? What's the way that the Israelites were to receive it in the wilderness? What's the way that we're to receive it today? Very simple, wasn't it? Look and live. Look and live. God doesn't give you a list of works to do. He tells you what he's done and he tells you to look and live. Believe in this Christ. Believe that his death and resurrection is fully, fully satisfying to God. Is enough for your salvation. It's enough for your sin. All of it. And not just for yours, but the sins of the whole world. To look on him and believe in him. You know, without the cross of Christ, there's nothing but judgment for you or for me. But through the cross, there's life. There's life in Jesus Christ. And so the good news is if you've been bitten by sin, look to him and live. I want to apply this and wrap it up here this morning and apply it in in a couple of ways. And one is is this. If you're you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you understand intellectually some of these things. Maybe you understand all of these things intellectually, but you're not sure for yourself. You're not sure that these things are really necessary. You're not sure that these things are really true. There are a number of questions that could be asked, but I want to ask you to think about this this morning. If you're not a Christian, can you, we've been talking about the cross of Jesus Christ and what happened there. Can you look at the cross of Christ? Can you think about what that, the significance of his cross is? Can you look at the cross And can you really think, can you really believe that you don't deserve what he bore there? Do you really think that you don't deserve that? Because I think for for so many people who live in this world, their guilt and their shame and their fear and their restlessness and their worry and their discontent all point to the fact that there is that deep knowledge that I'm not right with God. The Israelites were dying because of their sin. God's judgment was coming. And if they didn't look up and 
and see the serpent in the wilderness, they would perish. And if you don't look up to Christ in faith, you'll perish in your sin. But Christ Jesus has died for sinners. And in His death, He's made a full payment for sin. A full payment. And God's promise to you is that if you look to Him, you will live and never die. To those of you who are Christians, you know that looking to Christ is your daily need. Brian said it in the charge. The sins of Israel that we read are just your sins and my sins published for the world to read about. Focusing on Christ, looking to Him, crucified, risen, exalted, that's your daily need. And I want to apply it in much the same way that I think it arises in the text of Numbers. What are they dealing with? Grumbling, fear, discontent, worry, impatience. Things that we can identify with very quickly. How are those things addressed in your life when you really are gazing on Christ? Can you look to Christ who came to this world for you, who lived and died for you, has been raised for you, who lives in heaven for you, the same Lord who's coming again? Can you look to Him and continue to harbor just puny thoughts of God and His care for you? You understand what I'm asking? When you fall into grumbling and worry and fear and doubt and uncertainty and anxiety and all the sorts of things that we struggle with, what's happening is your view of God is shrinking down and down and down and down and down. You cannot look to Jesus Christ and maintain, and, and with faith and maintain this view of God. It always does this to your view of God, which always does this to your fears. Are you looking to Christ this way? Say to yourself, in some way or other, Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross, so I never will be. Jesus was abandoned on the cross by His Father so that I never will be. Jesus was cursed on the cross by His Father so that I would know His blessing forever. And if God hasn't held back His Son from me, but has delivered Him up for me, how can I think? How can I begin to think that He'll withhold from me any good thing that I need? But will He not freely, along with Jesus Christ, give me all that I need right on into glory? Will you please learn to think that way? Speak to yourself that way. Speak to one another that way. Well, what does all this mean for us? As we're going through numbers, this text, as every other text we've hit so far, is a call to live by faith, not by sight. Not to set your compass on where you think you are in the wilderness, but on God who's faithful and is with you in the midst of it. It's a call for us to marvel at the grace of God. It's a call for us to ponder the significance of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And really simply, it's a call for us to lift Him up. To lift up Jesus Christ. How? We want to lift Him up with our worship, don't we? Every week when we come together to lift Christ up. With our lives each day as we live in this world, wherever God's called you to lift Christ up, And what do you think will happen as that happens? What do you see happening already? It's as we lift Christ up, the healing power of the kingdom of God goes out from us, doesn't it? It does its work in our midst and it goes out from us. 
And what begins to happen, and what will happen until the last day, is more and more people will begin to not grumble, but to praise and to trust God and lift songs of praise up to Him until that last day when that will be a deafening sound in our ears. The sound of praise lifted up to God for His faithfulness. He is not unfaithful to you, His child. Jesus has been lifted up to the cross and to glory. And He's lifted up for you. Look to Him and live. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that this would be true more and more in our lives. That this, these things that are objectively true would become more and more the things that grip us and that change us. Grant to us, Lord, today grace to look to Him and to live. For Christ's sake and in His name we pray. Amen.